Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 111 of the Leading Wild Grain podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jason Caldwell. Jason is the founder of Latitude 35, a global leadership training firm, and he's also an adventure racer who currently holds two world endurance records. Jason has worked with some of the top companies in the world and led educational programs at some of the top business schools in the world. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Jason, I just want to thank each and every one of you who continue to support the Leading While Green podcast and who have been with us on the Find Your Courage Tour. The Find Your Courage Tour is part book signing for my book, Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to Keep Going, and part leadership development workshop. And we've had an incredible roster of speakers join us for every stop in the tour. And we know that our next tour stop, Nashville, Tennessee, on March 29th will be no exception. So I want to invite you to join me and my friends on March 29th. You can get early bird tickets at couragenashville.eventbrite.com. That's couragenashville.eventbrite.com. And we'll be rolling out the speaker lineup soon. And many more details, but you want to get these early bird tickets right now at CourageNashville.EventBright.com. Okay, so this conversation with Jason Caldwell was really, really, really good. We talk about his transition as an athlete from one sporting from one sporting culture to another, and we talk about the impact that an early coach and mentor had on his life and how it was transformative. And he still feels the reverberations from that coaching and mentoring to this day. So here's my conversation with Jason Caldwell. I'm excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading While Green podcast by Jason Caldwell. Jason, thanks for being my guest today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, take us back. How did you how did you end up at at Sonoma State? Like why that college of all the other ones you could have picked? Yeah, that's a great place to start for sure. Um, you know what? I played all the classic American sports growing up, football, baseball, basketball, and then getting into college, I, I chose to, to stick with baseball. I was playing on an obscure team at Montana State my first couple of years to college and realized that if I was going to try to take this further, I needed to go to a better baseball school I'm from San Francisco Bay Area. So, you know, Sonoma State was on my radar as a good school. So I decided to transfer there and play baseball, played there for a couple of seasons, um, and then also played for the San Francisco Angels, the semi-pro team, but injured my elbow. I actually got, got injured um, toward the tendon. I was a left-handed pitcher. And, uh, you know, there, there it goes. I was there for baseball, and all of a sudden here I'm kind of – you know, kind of rudderless, no pun intended. And then the uh, rowing coach, he approached me in my my senior year and asked if I'd be interested in rowing. So that's kind of how I got to Sonoma and then also how I got to rowing. So let's go back a little bit. I know you outlined this in your book, Navigating the Impossible. What, what was it like when you realized that this baseball dream was essentially done? I mean, what did it take for you to be able to say, okay, I got to walk away. I got to make that phone call to my dad. Yeah. This, this section of my life as I know it is over. Yeah, this was, I mean, this is for a young man and it's, you know, early to mid twenties, difficult, difficult decision. I grew up 
you know, thinking that this was, this was going to be my career playing baseball, being sports, you know, my, you know, pushed by my dad in a very positive way, but, you know, a lot of expectation there. And, um, you know, one pitch it's over. It wasn't a, it wasn't gradual. It wasn't like, well, I just don't think I'm good enough. And the writing was on the wall and every season I was getting kind of passed up by other players. It was just boom, one pitch, one pop of the elbow and, you know, one MRI scan later. And it was, it was over. So that type of just, finality of it was was very difficult for me as a young man and also with no real kind of back like a no, no real plan b for myself um you know probably one of the more devastating um decisions i had to make but in the end when i was told what the alternative was which was get a surgery that would put me in a brace for six months my senior year in college you know get the brace off almost exactly at the beginning of the season of my last year of eligibility, maybe rehab enough. And, and then of course, all the the scouts that were looking at me said, you know, when they hear about Tommy John surgery, they've kind of avoid you like the plague. They're saying things like, yeah, get the surgery rehab, and maybe we'll give you an open tryout in a year or two. Hmm. You know, these are just not things that you want to hear. And I think probably the best and most mature decision that I made was to just say, you know what? this is this I'm, I'm done with this and I don't want that that alternative for me that reality of being in a brace my last year of college and just kind of pushing through that was just it just didn't sound like something I wanted to do and it was a tough decision but absolutely 100% the right one so when the rowing coach approached you did you at first did you see rowing as like uh like consolation prize or did you approach it with like this is a new opportunity to to keep up with my competitive drive and spirit. What, what was your frame of mind at that initial conversation? <laughs> it was worse than the Constellation Prize. I thought rowing seems to sounded like a joke. The, certainly the Sonoma State rowing program seemed like a joke. They were in their second year of existence, completely obscure. Nobody had heard about them. They never won a race yet. And the rowing coach, you know, I like to say, I mean, he comes up to me and he's, and he's a young guy, but he's annoying me. He's kind of pushing me. I'm at the gym. He's kind of keeps talking to me and I'm trying to give him those signals. Like, you know, I'm not interested, but the guy was persistent. So he eventually convinces me to go to the open tryout, which was that following weekend. So I go It's seven in the morning. It's 15 minutes away from campus, 7am, as you know, for college students early. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I'm there and, you know, it's a complete disaster. Um, there's a hundred kids there. Nobody seems like an athlete. It's a small dumpy boat yard, no boathouse, just gravel, old boats, old oars. And I literally left there two hours later thinking that was the biggest waste of my time. And um, if it wasn't for one of the guys that was there who later on saw me at the gym and approached me and convinced me to give it a week's trial with him who, and he was maybe the only athlete I saw there. If it wasn't for that, that guy, who's now my best friend, um, I I think my life would be very, very different because I didn't give it the chance. I didn't see it as this redemption. I didn't see it as this, you know, second lease on my, you know, my athletic career. I was, had a chip on my shoulder and, um, and chose to look at it very negatively at first. So I don't know the familiarity of my uh, listener, listening audience with the sport of rowing. 
Uh, so can you kind of give us like rowing for dummies, like one on one, like you know, what does the sport entail, and and what were the what were the things that correlated to you know what you were doing as an athlete before, and what were some of the things you had to learn like from scratch? Yeah, so I mean, rowing and baseball couldn't be more polar opposites. Um, you know, while baseball has a lot of great redeeming qualities, um, it's it's not the ultimate team sport that that rowing. Um, is I mean you're in a in, in an eight or rowing shell so there's eight people rowing um, complete interdependency this is a 2,000 meter race that's collegiate and Olympic level and 2,000 meters to put that perspective about a mile and a quarter of rowing about six to seven minutes of rowing depending on how fast you're going so these are short races complete interdependency with your team um, and and very intense. And so I thought I knew what it was like to be a leader and a captain of a team. I thought what I knew what it was like to be part of a team, but it wasn't. I mean, baseball is very, very independent of one another. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you, you throw a ball, you catch a ball and um, you know, you can be a good player on a bad team and still have success down the road where as rowing, that's not the case. I mean, there's, there's no rugged individualism in rowing. So I'm kind of shocked and I'm, I'm humbled by this sport right away and when I take this week, I'm learning, you know, how to balance a boat, how to row with other people. And um, and so I'm realizing as I'm kind of getting into sport and falling in love with the sport and, and the people that were on the team. Because, by the way, this 100 people that it started out with dwindled down to 70 to 60 to 40 to 30 by the end of a month of working out at 530 every morning. Um, you know, there was 20 guys on the team. So I started falling in love with the sport, but also the guys, because the, these guys were as kid committed as me. I mean, 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m. is not a time you want to be getting up. <laughs> these guys were there. They're at the boathouse. We're working hard. We're in boats together, you know, and we're choosing to do this, um, you know, instead of a lot of other things. So you could see the camaraderie starts to grow and um, and it started to become a very special thing within the first couple of months. I think we're all realizing that we were part of something very, very special. Um, and, and and it wouldn't be long before Sonoma State would get its first win because of that special group of individuals. So at what point uh, did, and you said it's an interdependent sport. So at what point did the team start to get good? Did you start to realize or, or were you when you started to win and become notable and that for you, it made you a believer, not just in the camaraderie and how you were growing and maturing as an individual, but in terms of feeling like you could have long-term success in the sport. Like when, when did that transpire for you? Well, it's a great question. I'll take it one step back because this is interesting. This same annoying coach that I told you that recruited me to get to this, this, this tryout, mm -hmm. we found out as the weeks went by and we dwindled down to those 20 committed individuals that I wasn't he didn't just happen to find me at the gym. He was actually looking for me. In fact, wow. what he did, which was so unique at the time, I think it still is unique, <laughs> excuse me, is now remember Sonoma state is known for lacrosse, baseball, women's tennis. This is not known for rowing, mm -hmm. but he went to every single coach of every single sport at that school and asked those coaches to give him a list of all the people that they cut or they got injured, such as myself, or for whatever reason, weren't going to make the team. And he went through that list and asked those coaches to describe these people. Oh, this kid's just, you know, he's a little too small to play basketball, but he's got a good heart. Okay, he's not. He took that list and looked for something. He looked for people that had 
something to prove. And I came up on that list. And so he didn't just, you know, happen upon me at the gym. He was looking for me. He was also looking for Mike, the guy who convinced me to stay the week and ultimately convinced me to, to, to try out rowing, um, who was a soccer player and blew out his knee um, on the soccer team. This coach looked for these people and offered us all an opportunity to continue what we wanted, which was to be part of something greater than ourselves. This is this type of leadership. Yeah. Of course, we don't know this at the time, how special what this is, but yeah. that type of leadership by this coach was what made this team so successful. And as we yeah. started to progress through the fall and then the hard winter, the, the hard winter practices and then spring, which is the, the actual season, and we started winning and people just didn't understand how is this no-name team with a bunch of guys that have never held an aura until just a few months ago? How are they beating big schools? I'm telling you, the credit goes to that coach because he was offering us something that we all desperately wanted, but we didn't know we wanted, which was to feel part of something greater. And when you're in a boat and you feel that obligation to live up to those people that are in front and behind you, special things start to happen. And of course, that's just a great metaphor for building great teams and leading leadership in general was just kind of creating that environment where those things happen naturally. And that's what that coach was doing. And that's, I think we started to answer your question. I'm taking the long way around, of course, but we started finding this out. I think in the beginning of the spring, you know, we we go in first race, uh, we we get invited on on a, on a wing and a prayer by Stanford's invitational. We weren't even supposed to be invited, but they'd come and practice with us. And it was a favor. It was a pity invite. We got the one, we got one race against Sacramento state. We're supposed to get killed. We get, you know, when most guy teams from around the country are getting three, four races that week and we get one and we win and nobody expected us to win. Maybe even including ourselves. Cause we didn't even know how good we were yet. We didn't know. We were just practicing out in the river, Petaluma river in the middle of nowhere. And I think right there, all of a sudden, you started to look up, and the only person that wasn't surprised, of course, was our coach. Yeah. You knew it because yeah. what he built. Let, let's let's make some application here. You, yeah, you have spoken for major organizations um, that command, you know, huge huge budgets, and can really have their pick of top performers coming out of high school and from other organizations. What if I'm listening? or I'm reading your book and I'm not from one of those super well-known organizations. I'm from a, I'm, I got a small organization and I don't have my pick. What are the principles that I can take from your coach who was willing more or less to provide like redemptive experiences, picking people and turning them into high performers who might not have been high performers um, when, when you caught up with them or something that happened that changed their trajectory. How can we apply that to to people in that space? Yeah, that's a great question. And in the in the world that we live in, yeah, I, I speak at a number of Fortune 500 companies and, and, and lecture a lot of the biggest business schools. And I get this question a lot: is like, hey, that's great, you know, um, but how am I how am I supposed to go up against the big the big guys that have got the recruiting power? Here's here's the reality: is that we we often don't get to pick even the biggest companies don't get to hand select. I mean, there's a lot of competition out there for that talent. Um, and so you can look at the group of people that you have to lead in two ways. Really, initially, there's only two two ways to look at it. You can say, look, I need to get rid of this guy. I need to move this person in. I can move this. You can look at it that way. You can look at what, what you're missing and what you need to bring in. Or you can look at it and say, I've got everything here that I need. And now 
the onus is on you as a leader to to pull it out of them. And that starts just like with the story that I told with our coach, Mark, mm-hmm. who, who looked at us that way. I mean, he didn't have a single athlete that had ever rowed before. Not a single one. We didn't even know what rowing was when we showed up to the boathouse. Wow. And he did not look at it as like, I need to get, some, I need to recruit some people that can teach these guys more. I need, to, I, I need leadership here. He said, I've got everything I need. Mm-hmm. He knew he had athletes. He knew, just like companies know that they have talent. But they have to create an environment where they will be more interested in, in working for your something greater than they are in anything else. And that is something that needs to be built. Leadership is it's emotional. It's right-brained. Left-brained is obviously important. You need, the, you need the diversity. You need the talent. But once you've got what you've got, it all becomes an emotional part. And, and I think that that's that's where you can feel confident as a leader, no matter what kind of talent you have and no matter what kind of organization you're in is, is that you're, you're, you're building that, you're building that environment. So the people are more afraid of letting the team down than they are of anything else. Mm -hmm. And that you can align your individual motivations, which we all have, by the way, with your, the collective um, goals of the organization. That's a difficult thing to do. So what was it after the success that you experienced with your coach and at Sonoma State that led you to continue? Because let's fast forward in your book. You do that in the beginning. You fast forward, you know, 14 years. And I mean, we're talking about awards and championships and world records. What was it about that success in college at, at, you know, the end of your collegiate life that that made you say, I want to continue to do this? This is a great question. You've got some great questions. And I like that we're focusing on the beginning as opposed to the end. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll just, I'll just preface this by saying, you know, just, yeah, I've, I've you know, set the world record rowing across the Atlantic ocean and got a couple of gold medals at nationals for rowing silver and a bronze, all this stuff happened. This is great. I'm proud of all those, those things, but mm-hmm. we're talking about the genesis of, of, of where success begins. And I think how I went from kind of an obscure college team that had some kind of um, unprecedented success to, to where I got is this, this feeling of this deep seated, this deep seated feeling that, that life is short. Here, here's where I come from. This is something that I believed my whole life. And I've just more recently been really kind of focusing on it with my lectures. And, and, and when we're consulting with other leaders is mm-hmm. we hear this cliche. We, we've both said it. We've both been guilty of saying life is short, right? We say this all the time. We say yeah. life is short. Life is short. Everyone says it all the time, but I'm going to tell you based on my experience teaching leadership for the last 15 years, not many people actually believe life is short. The reality is people believe that life is long. In fact, it's so long that they've always got another year, another day, another week to get those things done. And they push off what they should be starting on that day. When I start consulting with leaders, we start from the foundation that they need to truly believe that life is short. Now, whether life is short or long, I don't know. That's not for me to decide or you. I guess it just depends on what you compare it to. But the reality is that most of us believe that we've got more time. And the difference between an ambitious person and a lazy person, I believe the only difference is that the ambitious person has a deep-seated belief that life is short and it's it's waning. And the lazy person believes they've got more time. So 
what, how I went from that is that after two years at Sonoma, I got that coach, that same coach, unbeknownst to me, made a couple calls to Olympic training teams on the East Coast, Philadelphia, Princeton, all these places. And I got a one-time trial to go to Philadelphia for a week at Vesper Boat Club, the best boat club in the country. I mean, I don't even know why they accepted me, but probably, I mean, this coach is just an amazing person, even a great salesman, as we all know now. Mm. He, I said, he told me, he said, look, here's the deal. You've got a ticket. You can fly to Philadelphia literally tomorrow. I just graduated. And he said, I, I promise you, he said this, mark my words, I have not prepared you for what you're about to see over there. Mm. These guys have been playing or rowing as long as you've been playing baseball. You are not prepared. But if you go, you will experience something that very few people ever experience. And I chose to take that ticket and I flew to Philadelphia the very next day because of this deep-seated feeling that life is short. What, 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 uh, what matters? I might make it one day, make it, make, make it a week. As it turns out, I lasted three and a half years. Wow. But that is the difference. That is the jump. That's the bridge is that take those opportunities because we don't know where they're going to lead. And it's okay if it leads to failure. It's absolutely 100% okay if it leads to failure. But if nothing else, I thought to myself, man, am I going to have a great story for these guys? I'm going to go fly to Philadelphia, you know, get my ass kicked for a week and then fly home. Great story. Mm -hmm. And that's where it came from is this deep seated belief, but we have to come from a belief and I'll, and I'll, and I'll stop after this. But when I'm talking to people, leaders in the business world, we, we talk about this. First thing we talk, I don't, I don't care about what the goals are yet. I don't care about who you've got on your team. I don't care about what we're trying to do. I want to know if you believe life is short or long. They always say, of course, I believe life is short. Hmm. And then I ask them to prove it. How do you believe life? Give me instances where you've acted because you believe that you may not have another opportunity. And what actually happens, if they're being very honest with me, and we dig deep enough and we get uncomfortable enough, is that they'll actually have to admit that maybe they don't actually believe life is short. Maybe they believe that life is a little bit longer than they, than it actually is. That's where we need to start from. Embracing this idea that life is short and we need to take advantage of, of opportunities as they're presented to us sometimes puts us in a place where we have to, some things we just got to quit. And, and in your book, you outline these a series of questions that we should ask when we are kind of at a crossroads and having to decide whether, you know, we should quit and pivot or redirect. So can you kind of just frame this idea because you're high performance athletes, you know, this idea is like, you never quit. Like you always to, to the bitter end to your fingers fall off. But in your book, navigating the impossible, you're calling us to reframe this idea of quitting. Can you kind of just walk us through that? Yeah, sure. So there is a good quit. And, you know, if you're like me, you grew up hearing that quitting is bad. Don't quit. You never quit. You stick it, stick through it. You, you don't worry about it. You keep going. And and, I, and that I find to be a very unproductive um, because and there's again, when, we, when I talk about this, when I'm consulting with with leaders, we, we go into a deeper dive of this healthy quit than we will unfortunately have time to today, but I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll go ahead and summarize it this way. In every decision you make to continue doing something or to stop doing it, mm-hmm. you are as an individual, as a human being, you are without even knowing it, measuring two things. Basically you're measuring suffering and sacrifice. How much will I suffer to continue on this journey, this adventure, this goal that I'm pursuing mm-hmm. 
And what will I have to give up in order to continue doing it? So for instance, um, for rowing across an Atlantic, the Atlantic ocean, 3000 miles, um, you know, to, if you decided you wanted to do it for the first time, right here, you're going to do it. And you say, I'm going to row across the Atlantic ocean. I'm really excited about doing this. And so you start to train the suffering for you is going to be great. You know, both the training and doing it because you've never done it before. You'd have to train for it. You get seasick. There'd be all kinds of stuff. You'd have to train. So you have to row on the rowing machine in a way that you've never experienced before. Um, for me, if I was on in that boat with you, my suffering would be less because I've done it twice. I train for it. I'm a rower. I don't get seasick. So the suffering would be much greater for you than for me. Now, the sacrifice has nothing to do with experience in rowing. The sacrifice is what I'm going to have to give up. Now, for you, I don't know, you know, you, whether you're married, you've got kids, that's all going to lead up to it. For me, I'm married. I've got a four and a half month old, my first, my first son, my first child. Going on these trips, I'm going to not spend time with them. That sacrifice is huge, right? And so at any given point, whether you're deciding to do something huge, like row across an ocean, lead a team to do something, lose 15 pounds, whatever it is, you're constantly measuring how much am I going to have to suffer? What am I going to have to give up? At any given point, if one or both of those things reaches a threshold that you are no longer willing to put up with, that's when the quit should happen, the pivot. And where we find ourselves is that we've got this mantra stuck in our head from our childhood that doesn't matter how much you have to sacrifice. doesn't matter what you have to give up. doesn't matter how much you stuff you push through. You said you wanted to do this, you get it done. This is not true. For me, I am not willing to go and do things at the detriment of my relationship with my wife and my child. This is just not something I'm willing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, If you are willing to do it, that's that's your own decision. That doesn't matter. But for me to go out and push through, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm going to row across the Pacific in June this year from San Francisco to Hawaii. There's a race. I'm training right now for it. I'll be gone for a month. I'll miss, you know, my wife's birthday. I'll miss, you know, my first father's day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are things that I take into consideration when I decided to do it. Now I'm doing it because I, I feel that for myself and for my family, this is worth it. But at some point that sacrifice will no longer be worth it mm-hmm. and I won't do it anymore. So these are the things that we're measuring, suffering and sacrifice. And once you feel that one threshold has reached or both has reached something you're no longer willing to put up with, it's not keep going through. It's stop. Think about it and pivot to something where you are willing to do it because we're all willing to do a lot for to reach our goals. But there is a threshold for everything. I guarantee it. Ellen, what do you do when people push back? They're, they're saying, well. Uh, if we allow space for people to once they reach a threshold to to walk away or to pivot, um, maybe like in, in teenagers or middle school kids or whatever, we're, we're cultivating bad habits for them. We're, we're teaching them um, not to have resolve and stick to itiveness. And, you know, some of the things that we that were shared with us uh, when we were kids, you know, you just got to power through when you're when you're coaching younger leaders or even talking to younger athletes. How do you frame that for them and even maybe especially their parents and how to wrestle with these these concepts? Sure. So first of all, I'd say that, remember, measuring suffering and sacrifice and 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 measuring whether it's doesn't mean that once it gets hard, you stop. That's not the same thing. I mean, there is a level of suffering that we're all willing to do and sacrifice that we should be willing to go. If once we feel that pain of suffering and sacrifice, we decide we stop. That's an unhealthy quit. Mm -hmm. But what I would ask people to consider is what's the opportunity cost 
of continuing to push through when you might now be unhappy that you're doing this? What thing are you giving up that you might not even know about in order to do this? And I don't mean just time spent with your family and, and your friends and all that stuff. I'm thinking I'm I'm bringing it back to my stuff. Mm -hmm. I at baseball, I'd get the surgery. I realized at that point, even though I didn't frame it in this way, because I wasn't, I hadn't been there yet, but I decided that the sacrifice is no longer worth. I am not willing to sacrifice my senior year of college being in a brace mm. and and having to basically go back to the start line and rehab my arm. I wasn't willing to do that. It just it, I wasn't willing to do it. And so I pivoted and I decided and that's when the opportunity opened up for me to row. It changed my life. Now, I'm not mm. saying that that's going to happen every time, but should I have pushed through, which would have been unhealthy for me to push through because I was no longer happy. Um, I, I would never have seen that opportunity. I certainly wouldn't be talking to you today. I wouldn't have, you know, a couple of world records. I wouldn't have done all these things I've done because um, I would have pushed through something that I was no longer happy with doing and no longer willing to do it. And I would have just pushed through that. So I would encourage people to understand that for every decision you make, there is a there's an opportunity cost for that decision. The more you push through and become unhappy with the decision you're making just because you don't want to quit the more, the larger the opportunity cost of something Mm. potentially greater. Um, You know, being a new father, it's really opened my eyes and everyone thinks that because, you know, did all these things that, oh, I bet you're excited that you have a son and, you you know, I don't care either way. As long as he's healthy and happy and he doesn't need to be a rower, he doesn't need to be an athlete, he wants to be a chef. I just want Mm -hmm. to be happy, you know, and this sounds very cliche. It sounds like, oh yeah, okay, we get it. You want your kid to be happy, but these are the things that I'll be impressing upon him is that, you know, is that the suffering level of suffering and sacrifice is so important um, that I do not want him to push through. So many athletes have been unhappy in their success. And Mm -hmm. the whole point of success is to make you happy. So, you know, I think that that's what I'd be telling young athletes, young leaders, entrepreneurs, whoever it might be. Now you, you have built and worked with a high performance team. And I was I was interviewing Coach Dana Cavalier, the former strength and conditioning coach for the Yankees, and he said he said that we don't we don't rise to the occasion, we fall to the level of our training. Uh, as you think about your team, and you know, the, I'm sure being out in the ocean, there's some treacherous, crazy things that have happened. How 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 did you work with your team? In, in practice and training in the vacuum scenario so that when you face those treacherous, what are we going to do? This is crazy sort of moments. You, you had that in the tank to draw from. Yeah. First of all, I a hundred percent agree with that sentiment. So, um, well, it's easily kind of defined by the juxtaposition of the two ocean rows. I, I rode across the Atlantic. It's, an, it's a rowing race. It starts in the Canary Islands off the coast of Northwest Africa and goes 3,000 miles across the ocean to Antigua and the Caribbean. That's the race. Wow. And I've done it twice now. I did it in 2015, 16, because it, it starts in December and goes through the new year. And then I did it again and re-upped in 2016 and 17. So I did it in two consecutive years, one of only a few people ever to ever do it twice, let alone in consecutive years. Mm. The first time we did it, 600 miles into the 3,000 mile race, two of my teammates were evacuated. Wow. Now, one was evacuated because of illness and injury. He needed to. He needed to get an IV. He was very, very sick. But the second guy left because he had an opportunity. The sailboat came to rescue our first guy. 
And he said, I'm out. I don't even want to be here anymore. He just quit. He was gone. And it was left with myself and my remaining teammate. We finished by ourselves the 2,400 miles. Took 11th place out of uh, 28 teams. Set the American record, but obviously didn't win the race and didn't break the world record like we had tried to do. That was our goal. Mm-hmm. We, we, we came down to, the, to that level of our training, which was a mental and emotional training that was not suited for what we were taking on. Our team was not willing, some of those teammates, especially the guy who just decided he was over it, was not willing to do whatever it took, like we all assumed he would. Mm-hmm. Following year, I put a new team together. I've got eight months to recruit and train a team against the other teams that I've taken two years to train for. This, this race takes about two years to train for. How am I going to do this? And I changed the way that I was going to recruit and train this team. I was going to recruit for selflessness. People that were just a little bit more worried about everybody else in the boat than they were about themselves. Knowing that if I recruited and had four guys that were all doing that, that everyone would be taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I trained and I, I recruited for that. And once we started training, we rode, we got bigger, we got stronger, of course, but we spent time together. Mm-hmm. We built a community around us and it wasn't just us. It was any was our friends, our family, our kids, parents, neighbors, anybody that wanted to be part of this, this campaign, this team, we would give them a role so that when we went back to the start line now to do it again, we had instead of just the four of us, we had a community, a family of people that we now had to live up to. And let me tell you something, when you were 2000 miles into a 3000 mile race, you need that feeling. What I realized about kind of training these teams and is that, yes, of course, you need to be physically strong, but this mental and emotional dependency on one another became oh so important. And the thing, the harder the thing that you're choosing to do is, the more you need to rely on that community. And that's how I build all my teams now is I, I build a sense of community of selfless individuals who want to be part of something greater than themselves. That's the team I want to build. Those are the people that I want. And when when you're recruiting, by the way, you can. Everybody will say they're selfless. You know, do you find yourself still? Oh, yes, of course I do. They want to be on the team. Of course they're going to say what they think you want, what you want to hear. So what we do is when we train, we go out there. We get pushed around by the ocean, and we observe each other. How are we interacting with one another now that we're seasick? And we're not feeling good, and we're sleep deprived. So that's what we do. We did that a couple months ago on this team that we're training for here for the Pacific race. I'm going to go next month uh, to London to meet my team out there. We're going to row from London to Amsterdam. We'll do it again. It'll be cold and frigid and we'll be freezing and we'll observe how we interact with each other. But I promise you the team that I put together, and this will sound audacious, but there's this race from Pacific, from San Francisco to Hawaii. It's in June. We'll enter it. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to win. We will win. We will win the race. And I'm telling you that not because I'm some audacious American, although That's probably part of it. But I'll tell you, because that's how much I believe in the stuff that we're talking about today. Building these teams, building a community and building it in a way, just like our coach did, Coach Mark at Sonoma, in a way where you are more worried about the person sitting next to you than you are about yourself. This this strong sense of leveraging human emotion where I am desperate to do the best that I can do, not for myself, but for everybody else. And they in turn are doing that to me. This is such a powerful tool for human beings. It's probably the most powerful tool you've got at your disposal is to leverage human emotion in that way. That's why I know we're going to win that race. And again, you know, I'll say it right now, I'm standing on your show. 
follow us on that race. You can say, I told you so if we lose, but I'm telling you right now, we will win that race. Jason, I know we're almost out of time, but I got a, just a couple of things I need to ask you before, before I let you go. Um, yeah. The first one is, I know you talked about community and this idea of transitioning to having this support system behind you. Can, can you talk about the, the necessity of being willing to accept help from unlikely places? And, uh, and I'm connecting this to the, the sponsorship journey that you've been on. And, you know, approaching big names, big boxes uh, to get sponsorship and then, you know, connecting with a sponsor, a supporter that I had never heard of <laughs> until yeah. I read your book. And sometimes wh- why why it's it might not be a multimillion dollar organization, but it could even be somebody else in the organization that you work for that you could place an unlikely that ends up being one of your best supporters. And why should we as leaders should be open to finding help and support from unlikely places? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think that starts out with, first of all, of course, we want to be open to find help. I mean, you've got to be comfortable and confident and secure in your own self in order to ask for help. And this is something that we just we just need to be comfortable with. But when I went out in these, these endeavors, these adventures that I take on are expensive. I can't afford it. Um, you know, you need corporate sponsorship. You need, you need that kind of help. Everybody does. And when I first started, you know, looking for my first adventures, you know, it seems you go after all the people that, you know, I go after the, the Nikes and the Red Bulls and, you know, all these big names because they seem to be in the same world that you're in. And I found that it was tough because two things. One is everybody's asking them for money. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, um, you, you've got a lot of competition. So I got some great advice um, from um, from a professor at the Kelly School of Business in Indiana University who said, don't worry about going after the people that seem to be in the same business as you are. Go after the people that have the same core values that you have. Mm. So that's what I did. I started saying, what, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? Yeah, of course, we're running across the ocean, but what, why does that matter to us? Yeah. You know, what are we trying to do? And so we created a mission statement for our team. And we started looking at companies who have their state of mission statement. You can find almost every state of mission statement on every website of every company. And we started going after companies that seemed to match the same values that we had as a team. And that's how I found Carlisle, um, who is a, yeah, you don't even know. They're a, they're a manuf- worldwide, man- they're huge, but they're a worldwide manufacturing company that make things that aren't sexy. I mean, you know, the coding on your desk is probably done by them. Um, building materials, wiring harnesses for Boeing jets. I mean, just things that aren't exciting. But I met the CEO who heard about us and said, I can't even believe what these guys are about to do. He invited me out for dinner and he said, look, I'm interested in sponsoring this because here's what I want. I've got 15,000 employees around the world. I'm not interested in inspiring my executives. I'm interested in inspiring the guys, the men and women working in my warehouses. They're trying to figure out how they're going to send their kids to college, put braces on their kids' teeth, these types of things. That's what I want. I want an inspirational story of doing the impossible for these people. That is why he gave us money. He didn't do it so that he could sell more of their stuff. I mean, they don't even sell to the public. That's what he wanted. He wanted the story. And then when we gave him the story of four guys down to two and we finished the race anyway, that's when he told me the next time I saw him, I said, if you do this again, 
we're backing you because what you gave us was it was a great story. And so I found, you know, and a lot of people ask me, how, how do you raise funds for this? I've had, you know, a lot of success in raising funds. And that's why I do I stick to that. If all you want to do is put your logo on my boat and be seen, I'm not interested. That's not, and, and I can take a lot of money, but that's not sustainable. I'm interested in people that want to be part of this family and this community that we have. And um, by the way, um, we're asking for money, but they're asking for something too. They want to be part of this journey. That's something that, you know, that they can't buy anywhere else. So we're giving them something unique, a very intimate story of humans doing the impossible. So, uh, man, Jason, give 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 me the sales pitch or give the listeners the sales pitch. Like why we're in the bookstore, we're on Amazon, you know, we, we come across this this title Navigating the Impossible. Why should we read this book? Well, you know, it's going to sound self-serving and of course it is because I'm talking about my book right now, but I think that when teaching leadership, building high-performance teams, we've got two ends of the ends of the spectrum. We've got, um, I found, you know, you've got um, the academics who have studied this their whole life, yeah. and, and and they they know a lot of what the surveys say. They know what the what the studies show, but they've spent little, very little time experiencing being great leaders or being part of great teams or being part of dysfunctional teams or making those mistakes. They haven't spent time in the trenches. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the people. Um, the adventurers, the people that are on these teams that are doing things that are impossible. But I also find that they have a hard time articulating the lessons. They don't even know what they've learned. You know, they, they, they don't really know how to put it together to teach people. I think why this book is unique is because I offer kind of right in the middle. I spend time in both worlds. Um, I'm an academic. Um, I'm, I, I lecture at a lot of different universities. We teach this with our clients, but I'm also out there staying relevant building a team every year for one world record attempt, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, hopefully sound being humble enough to being able to share those experiences with our clients. And that's what this book is. Every chapter is half the chapter is an anecdote of some of the stories that you've heard today in detail. And the rest of the chapter is the leadership and, and high performance team building lessons that my myself and my teammates learned from that experience. And I think that it's uh, it offers a unique perspective. So how can we how can we catch up with you? What social media handles, URLs, where can we buy the book if we're interested in, in coaching or everything else that you offer? How do how do we get a hold of you? Yeah. So um, if you're uh, if you're on social media, uh, Instagram is a great way to keep uh, in touch with us at Team Latitude 35. Um, you'll get to see great pictures of us and all our adventures and also stay up to date on what we're doing. So that's at team latitude 35. And if you're interested in some of our teachings um, or just want to get a hold of me, uh, www.latitude35leadership.com. You'll see all of our program offerings and honestly hit that contact button, send me a message. We will respond to you. We're a small company that has, you know, we, we have large wings, but if you just want to talk, I think that's something that we're pretty good at. Send us a message on Instagram or contact us on our website. You will hear from me. You will. And and I'm happy to have a conversation. My guest today has been Jason Caldwell, high performance athlete, leadership speaker, all around good guy and author of the book, Navigating the Impossible, Build Extraordinary Teams and Shatter Expectations. Jason, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest today. 
Loved being here. Thank you so much. Great conversation with Jason Caldwell about his journey as an athlete, his journey as a leader, the lessons that he's experienced and how he's coalesced all of these lessons into his book, Navigating the Impossible. And we put the links to Jason and his work in the show notes. So you want to be sure to click on those to get your copy of Navigating the Impossible. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know, it's my mission to help you live, learn and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care. And God bless.